0: This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Hello and welcome to the shortlist episode of the Bailey Gifford Prize podcast. I'm Razia Iqbal and in this episode we'll be speaking with judges Dr Zand van Tulliken and Dr Miriam Francois to talk about the six titles in contention for that £50,000 prize money. I'm joined also by a book, Olive or Olive Fellows, booktuber, writer and founder of Nonfiction November. She'll give us her insights into the world of nonfiction. Thanks again to our generous podcast supporters, the Blavatnik Family Foundation, for their continued support. Now, for those of you who haven't yet seen the 2019 shortlist, here they are in alphabetical order. Furious Hours, Murder, Fraud and the Last Trial of Harper Lee by Casey Kep. On Chapel Sands by Laura Cumming, The Lives of Lucian Freud, Youth, William Fever, Maoism, A Global History by Julia Lovell, Guesthouse for Young Widows by Azadeh Muavani and The Five, The Untold Lives of the Women Killed by Jack the Ripper by Hallie Rubenhold. Congratulations to all of them. Let's uh, talk now to two of the judges and Miriam, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Let's start by just getting a sense, an overall, overarching sense of what this experience of reading these books has been like for you and, and trying to whittle them down to the long list and then the short list. Uh, Miriam, let's start with you. Um
1: Well it's been a lot of reading (laughs) clearly (laughs) Um, and it's been a lot of reading of books that aren't necessarily the obvious ones you know when you when you're judging um, a book prize you get handed books that you would never usually pick up for yourself and so um, I think that's challenging in some ways and also massively enlightening in others because you suddenly discover that actually it's quite quite good to step outside your genre um, from time to time but um I think it's also been a really great process in trying to figure out what you think makes a good book. Because you can have a feeling when you get read a book, you know, you'll, you'll finish it and you'll just be like, oh, that was a really great book. But when you sit there having to compare loads of books, it's you do have to sort of extract some some criteria that's going to allow you to assess them fairly. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's not been at least half the challenge. Zand, what
0: about you? How's it been?
2: I think, I mean, like Miriam says, just the volume of reading, I was totally terrified of it. When I got, you get the stack of books delivered to your house and it's a massive box full and you think, well, I don't have that long to do it. And you start to divide the amount of time you've got by the number of books and you're kind of getting through fat books in a couple of days, you know, and, and everyone on the everyone on the judging panel's got a job. And yet, actually, it, at least for me, but I think probably for everyone, it, it was a complete delight. It was unbelievably enjoyable. And it made me realise, I mean, I you know, I read a lot when I trained as a doctor. I've studied for lots of exams. You have to read a lot of books. Uh, but actually, for pleasure, I'm kind of lazy about it. And it just reminded me that I should be trying to get through a couple of books a month.
0: I mean, I was a judge, too, a couple of years ago. and And it's overwhelming, mm. I would say, to begin with. But then when you get into it, there's a real sense that you're... Worlds are opening up in a way that perhaps even as someone who works in international current affairs, I thought, oh, well, you know, I read loads of nonfiction all the time. Hmm, not really. <laughs> uh, well, I had the, yeah. o- the
1: other problem. I feel like I only read nonfiction. I mean, I'm constantly just reading, you know, deeply theoretical books, and very occasionally, maybe on holiday, I might grab a fiction book. But to have to read fiction books that, especially, not the ones I would have selected. Um is has definitely been a, a real challenge and opened my eyes really actually to um to taste that I didn't really knew know I had
0: that well that's that's lovely right that's really wonderful because I I think that that tells us something about uh, the way in which this prize resonates with people who are likely to to buy these books uh, let's uh, let's go in alphabetical order and start with uh, why why you think Casey kep made it to. Uh, this shortlist: Furious Hours, Murder, Fraud, and the Last Trial of of Harper Lee. That this is such an interesting uh, true crime story, but but weaved into it is why Harper Lee did not write this story. Zand, what did you what did you think of this? Were you utterly gripped by it?
2: I actually thought I was going to be very bored by this. I, I was not. I was not particularly interested in the kind of the great mystery of why Harper Lee didn't didn't write any more books, and so. Uh, I was amazed from the first the first chapter sort of talks about the flooding of the valley to create a reservoir this system of hydroelectric dams and it talks about what that meant to a community that I knew nothing about and right from the first minute I was learning stuff that I had no idea about it is a great kind of murder story Um, Casey Kett and then, and then Harper Lee only comes, Harper Lee comes into the book pretty late. Um, Casey Kepp has this lovely quote which she gets from Harper Lee because it's really the book that Harper Lee couldn't write. Um, and Casey Kett says Harper Lee had one good sentence in it. Um, he might not have, uh, talking about Willie Maxwell, the, the reverend, the, the man who was the murderer, um, she says he might not have believed in what he preached, he might not have believed in voodoo, but he had a profound and abiding belief in insurance, and we get this description of how life insurance—it's could... It's a classic. You sort of can't believe that it was really a thing to start murdering your wife or wives. Yes, more than more than yeah. one yeah. wife, and, yeah. and
0: and this was a, a, an incredibly notorious case uh, back in the 1970s. Uh, M- Miriam, th- this character, Reverend Willie Maxwell, uh, completely and utterly compelling.
1: He is, and I think that's that's the beauty of it, is that you really um, get a sense of this deeply manipulative man who manages to get away with murder, not once, not twice. But, you know, it. it it's just, and every time it happens again, you're thinking, because obviously you already know that he, he gets away with it for uh, far too long, but as you're reading through it, you're sort of thinking, well, at this point, you know, they can't possibly accept this, not the insurance, not the police, not the community, not the next woman that he's going to. Um, and, and and so yeah, I mean that's the art, the art of how she's written it is that you do feel like you get to know him um, and that you're you're almost taken in e- even as a reader by him hmm.
0: uh, and that's which really i thought interesting. was really skillful by the end of it zan though were you were you convinced that uh, the the reasons why harper lee was unable to harness this story was that of interest to you by the end of the book
2: it, it was and i thought what was so lovely is that the book does several things It's it's telling a bit of the story of harper lee it's telling centrally this incredible kind of true crime story but along the way, you, you, you get a background of the precariousness of women's lives, the vulnerability of women's lives, of race relations, of the history of the South. And then a bit of Casey Kep comes through as well, that you get a sense of how hard it was to do this research. She she mentions explicitly what records were available to identify where Millie, Willie Maxwell was at which points. And, and quite often reading nonfiction, I'm I'm left going. I want to know more about the method. I want to know who you are and how you came to write this. And she she is not in it as a central character, but in the background, you're aware of who she is, and she's she's quite an interesting character in herself. So I think this kind of almost quite gothic style of writing, I, I really the whole the, the book's doing lots of work on lots of levels. It's a brilliant bit of writing.
0: That's really really interesting. The way in which uh, she inserts herself. Uh, let, let's talk about On Chapel Sands by Laura Cumming, which is uh, on the face of it a much smaller book than the one that we've just been talking about. It's very much a memoir of Laura's uh, mother and her mother's life, but it's also about Lincolnshire, a part of uh, a, a kind of rural part of, of England. Uh, how, how did this one strike you? Because it, it, it seems to me anyway that, that this is a book that tells us just as much about an area and her family, but also about secrets.
1: Yeah, and I think that's what makes it not a story about one family and its mystery, but actually all families and all mysteries that um, people have. And and so yeah, when you're when you're reading through it, and I think there's also some beautiful techniques that are woven through it. I think in terms of style, this is a very very beautiful book. It's a very easy to read book and I don't mean that in, a, in in a negative sense. I absolutely mean it mean it in a positive sense that it's it flows just but just beautifully in, in um the the use of pictures which is kind of not unexpected because you wouldn't expect in this medium for pictures to be the way that you'd go about telling a story but somehow she manages to weave the pictures in as a way of telling the story that doesn't feel um force that feels actually like a um a very coherent way to follow the narrative um so i mean i i thought that it it was a kind of it was a book that opened the door for you to explore your own mysteries which was i think why it's it's made it to the yeah, shortlist
0: that, that's very interesting it doesn't surprise me at all that it's beautifully written uh, laura is uh, a a an arts correspondent, an arts art critic, really, and and also the use of the visual is not surprising in that context. D- did you enjoy the lyricism of this?
2: I, I did. I, I had a very very personal reaction to this book. Everyone's family is is kind of pulled apart, has some tensions in it, or some some mysteries buried into it, and and possibly as a as a kid and growing up, your family is the first mystery you encounter. The sort of there is a story that's presented to you that is is very rarely the complete truth. Um. And I think this this tale of the her mum being snatched away, being kidnapped—that's how the book starts. And clearly, there's some secret shame in the family, or some bit of disgrace. There's some secret that's kept. It, it felt at the beginning quite old-fashioned. You go, we don't have this anymore. Now we're over it. You know, there are people with all kinds of family arrangements, and what's the big deal? But actually, for me, my son's growing up in Canada, um, dealing with guilt, shame, secrets, revelations, photo albums that tell stories that you're maybe no longer allowed to have lying around, all those sorts of things. Um, this was the only book of the of the shortlist that, that had me in tears twice. And I'm not, except for long airplane flights, I don't get too tearful. <laughs> uh, but I really, really felt this was relevant to anyone who's ever sort of, wanted to dig into a family. And as you say, the the visual stuff, uh, she's an art critic. And so there was a danger that it would feel like, oh, I'm such a great art critic. Look at me, critique these pictures. In fact, the pictures did so much work. And, and and the the reveal in the final picture, um, I felt it could have been corny. And instead she handles it very, very kind of beautifully. So I think, I know what you mean. It feels like a small book. Actually, I think any, anyone anyone who's ever wondered about their family um would find something in here that was relatable or strange, even though it's a it's it's a very it's very English, it's very white, it's of a very particular period, it, it still feels like it tells a broader story.
0: Mm, and that must include every single person, everywhere,
2: right? I would hope so. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and and I think one of the things I as you were talking that I was thinking about was as you're reading it, you you want the denouement, you want to hear the resolution, you want to understand what happened. And I, at successive points, when I'd put it down for a break, I'd be like, maybe we'll never know. Maybe we'll never know. Just like in my family, we will never know. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And, 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 I wanted
2: uh, to come uh, and do my family <laughs> next
0: yeah. Exactly. But,
1: but that was okay too, because that's that was also, quite, I also, I mean, I don't know if that was intentional, but that was also a process that the book took you through, which was, there are mysteries in every family. And even as you explore them, you may not get to a resolution. And that doesn't mean that there wasn't a journey that you went on that wasn't valid and interesting, because it is. You, I mean, all of it before the denouement is still interesting. But um, yeah, it definitely had me had me reflecting on uh, the personal, which I think is the the real value of it.
0: Wonderful. So, so the next one is uh, by another art critic, William Fever, uh, and on the face of it, a, a pretty conventional um, historical biography of a very, very well known figure, The Lives of Lucian Freud. This is the first volume, Youth, which I think takes us from Freud as a, as a young boy in Berlin up until I think his late 40s, uh, very much ensconced in, in Soho life in, in London. Um, Zand, what did you think of this?
2: So I, I absolutely love this. I found it, um, I, don't, I don't love biography as a phenomenon it's not my favourite genre I wasn't particularly interested in Freud's work Um, it turns out if I speak to um, I felt like if I spoke to all my female friends who are in their say 60s or 70s I felt like most of them had slept with Lucy and Freud I mean it was quite remarkable How Who many people? Who do you
0: hang
3: out
2: with? It's, I mean, it seemed it seemed like anyone, and so he he made me. I thought what was so great that the, 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 the book, even if you're not interested in in that period or that person, it tells it paints a picture of London life and of this very particular person. You know, Sigmund Freud's grandson, living this kind of life of total psychological dysfunction. That you kind of go, what would his grandfather? possibly have made of this i, I mean, mean totally that's amazing. really
0: interesting right <laughs> and that, I,
2: I, I think even if you're even if you feel that there are there are definitely more important or worthy people to kind of study and spend hours with in a, in a fat book um he brings to life this character who is so obnoxious uh it, sort of so, so much of his behavior is so immoral and and fever has a very light touch about the judgments there's a lovely bit at the end i, I won't be able to quote it exactly but he sort of says um he quotes freud's talking to him and he says well of course i've never been much of a family man and and fever just puts he adds comma unnecessarily <laughs> that's like <laughs> this very very light bits of judgment where you kind of go yeah he he knows what's going on um, but uh, I have to say, and, and and in fact, you know, Francis particularly, the other judges who know much more about biography because they are themselves biographers, um, really felt as a piece of craft, as a piece of research, this was um, absolutely outstanding. And I kind of deferred to their judgments, but just as someone, as a very lay person on this topic, enormously enjoyable
0: book. Miriam, did you did you sense when you were reading it that this this was in a way? Freud by Freud because he was given so much fever was given so much access. They spoke every single day. So as a piece of research, it feels as though it's it's something really quite um unique.
1: I still feel like you can distinguish, though you do you do get the um, you know, pockets where it feels very direct. but you you do is as, as um, Zand was saying, like there are definitely elements of, um, a third party—I don't know if you want to call it judgment—or but but certainly a little bit of distance from the subject in places. I mean, look, I think if you're a fan of Lucian Freud, I think if you're interested in the Freud family, if you're very interested in the antics of you know very upper class uh, families you know with the, the and in the context of you know the the second world War and you know um the the the, the plight really of, of people who, who had to flee certain contexts and end up in another but it's still a very elite, a uh, world, um, and to me, reading it, it's a world that I, uh, I read almost as if I, I'm a Martian. Like I, I have, I have no. The, this is not a world I understand. It's, but but if you're, but it's a window into it. And to the extent that you can learn from peering through any window, there's a lot to be gleaned from it. Um, but I, but I certainly feel like um, it's it's one for people who have like a profound fascination with with Lucian Freud. In, in, indeed. I mean, this is
0: this is this is a, a first volume, which is more than 600 pages. So so that, you know, the second part of his life is is obviously going to be probably as as fat as this one. Let's go even bigger now um, and look at Julia Lovell's book, Maoism, a global history. Uh, Miriam, what did what did you make of this? Because this is very much about the the, the way in which the um, the ideas of Mao still linger in in different parts of the world
1: yeah which which i think she makes the really good point that we have probably up until this point, largely assumed that his ideas were history and no longer relevant. And actually, I think we've massively, when I say we, I think in the Western world, massively underestimated um, the, uh, the enduring impact of his ideas, not just in the Chinese context. And that's the point, the global impact of his ideas. And the global impact of his ideas is important because... Actually, there are still many parts of the world where, um, you know, socialist ideals of this kind are not regarded as a thing of the past. They still inform the ideals of the society and they still inform how people think that, you know, the future should be devised. So I thought in, to the extent that she's able to um, put, I, I don't want to say put Mao back on the map because he should already have been on our map, but it's a really important um correction i think to a uh, a lacune as we would say in french an, an absence of knowledge in an in an area that uh we in the west are are wanting on and there has n- never been a more important time to understand um some of the ideological underpinning um of modern china but you know and and far beyond that but i think the honestly the the part of the book that i found m- most brilliant was the fact that I'm I'm really used to reading academic books about theory and ideology and you know I'm weird I sometimes enjoy that Uh, but (laughs) but in this case I you know I didn't have to delve into the uh, part of me that enjoys that I you know it was accessible it's a book that I actually genuinely feel you could hand to somebody and say you're not going to believe me but you're actually going to enjoy this book and you, and they will because she's written it in a very accessible there are lots of um colorful anecdotes that that make everything that, that 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 tie in the theory to the reality in a way that makes it tangible and you know there was always a risk with a title like maoism but i think she did she did a beautiful job at, at kind of making sure that it wasn't too pie in the sky
0: and, and Zan, did you did you learn as much as you thought you might given that what she's talking about is the shining path in peru and the naxalites in india and and so on and so forth i
2: think so i mean i think what what she does is is almost an opposite thing to william fever's book on freud um in that he he just says he grabs you by the hand and just goes come with me come with me i'll just i'll just take you on a tour and you're either up for it or you're not and she meticulously makes the case i mean i mean the first maybe 100, 200 pages, she is explaining why this phenomenon is intensely relevant to any understanding of the 20th century and understanding of the contemporary world. And I think that its its role in African socialism, as you say in Peru with The Shining Path, all the different, in Indonesia, all the different um, places that Maoism has been manifest. And I think she does a very nice job of uh, showing you, the, the the non-ideological nature of that ideology that it comes from this man who was himself a set of contradictions his his expounded views on women versus his actual treatment of the women in his life Shocker. um yeah it's, it's, <laughs> i mean the who only man that in history that could happen who could ever who be knew it,
1: that it, men could say one I thing know, and behave in a completely it was a different total way revelation to me. i bet it was
2: um so, but there were that, that those contradictory elements I thought worked really well because Maoism is sort of both the face of this vast modern engine of capitalism in China. Now it's sort of got this kind of bureaucratic facelessness that the people on top, as well as an underdog um, kind of some of the losers of history, also have adopted it, and and you see the the emblem everywhere. It's been co opted by all sorts of different groups. And so I, I think it. She really takes you on a tour through that, where you're not, you're not left with a definition of like this is Maoism. You're left going, here is how this thing has been co-opted and translated and mutated into different things.
0: Let, let's talk about. Did, did you want to say something well, more about the, d- the d- Mao d- book? Here?
1: Just, just on this note, because I think that she doesn't also leave the book in history. She takes it, you know, in a way that you sort of go. Oh, okay, so populism today, the whole idea of tapping into the will of the people, this was something that Mao was doing his own version of and the idea that you would try and make that will manifest, but obviously in the process, you know, at what cost? And I just thought that there was a really a uh, a delicate balancing act that she did between uh delving into the history but then sort of f- uh flagging the ways in which actually a lot of Mao's ideology or a lot of the pillars of Mao's ideology are are, are used by other populists today um that's from, really interesting from other mm. parts of the political spectrum yeah
0: let's uh, let's move on and talk about uh asherday uh, guest guesthouse for young widows this is a, a an incredibly uh, detailed piece of a uh, journalistic research, uh, but tells us so much about uh, the thing that has dominated current events uh, more recently: the the rise of the Islamic State group. Uh, Miriam, what did you what did you make of this?
1: I thought this this wasn't this is an incredible book. This is a. A book that um, as someone who, who who works on some of the same themes and has has lived and worked in the region, I felt that the book was such a pure testimony to the issues that are that, that, that are there and doesn't simplify and embraces the um, the ambivalence of some of the stories. You know, there's nothing patronising about the way that Azadeh comes at these stories. You will simultaneously feel very frustrated and very angry and very empathetic and very understanding of the choices that these women are making. and And it could risk staying stuck in the stories of these women, but actually she manages to tie them in to these much wider developments in a way that really um, helps to, um, I, I think, really helps the reader understand what's going on at, at you know, a, a, a political level at a at an international level even, and that's that's no small feat because I don't think there are very many people that fully understand the micro of these women's lives, the micro of people's lives in these countries, and she's going across obviously there are people in this who are from europe there are people from the middle east the micro of their stories but also the macro of the geopolitical forces that are at work and manages to fuse them in a way that helps you understand both i mean it's it's genius
0: it, it it's it's an extraordinary structure this book as well because what she's doing is taking the stories of these i think 13 Young young women and you know in some cases girls. The impulse for for her interest was the the three girls, uh, schoolgirls from Bethnal Green, who who went to join the Islamic State group in Syria. Uh, Zan, what what did you make of 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 the the fact that she is able to meld? You know, if every every chapter will be about uh, one of the one of the young women or girls, and then she'll do a kind of historical analysis of the Middle East. That that feels like a a really weighty. Way to approach this subject.
2: I, I mean, like Miriam, I, I have a, a particular interest in, I suppose, um, at least the 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 movements of refugees and the the violence in the Middle East, and um, and I guess the extraordinary thing that she did, she's got a very difficult project where she is, I don't think, trying to get our sympathy, but trying to simply get the reader to understand that these are normal people in particular situations. I don't think she makes a particular appeal to say you should feel either sorry for these people or or, or impose a narrative of victimhood on them. But um, they are not monsters. Um, I suppose a lot
0: of it is the countering of those tabloid headlines as well, right? And and,
2: and not just the tabloid headlines. I mean, I, I I really was surprised as the Shamima Begum story unfolded In in liberal in my little cosmopolitan bubble, there were people going. Well, of course we should take away her passport. Of course she should be left to die with her kid in the refugee camp. So, she. What I think she does so well is allow you to pose the question: To what extent are we in the West responsible? To what extent are we wrong? To have this extreme, de- she, she uses a phrase. Uh, I think she talks about the demonologists, the people, the narrative we've created around ISIS as a completely unique phenomenon, rather than saying they are not just a product of certain bits of Western foreign policy, but also, oh, can we really regard their behaviour as so very much worse than certain Western states in the in in recent history in the in the in the Middle East? Probably not. And she does that in a way that. The question becomes acceptable and accessible, I think, to most readers. I I thought, uh, like Miriam, I really, really, of, of possibly of all the books on the shortlist, this would be the one that I would press into someone's hand and go, "If you want to understand the world and why, why, you know, evil people do horrible things, this book will." Disrupt that narrative for you?
0: Yeah, it, it's it's very uh, nuanced, and and also the thing that struck me about this is is how novelistic she is in her approach of painting the characters. Mm. That that was beautiful, I thought. Absolutely,
1: because I think there was always a risk with this that it might seem quite journalistic in style, but actually this could be a novel. It really could. I mean, these aren't fictional characters, but it could absolutely be a novel. What What struck me as well, which I thought was such an important point that she makes in the book, is to borrow the term the banality of evil. Um, the idea that if you are an upper class Syrian young woman living in Raqqa, just as ISIS is taking over your town, that your choices are are not our choices as we sit here in London judging the situation from afar. And she does this incredibly beautiful um, job of... of, of ensuring that we understand why it is that your options you you probably would make the same choice is what you will come away with don't don't stand there above her because you in that situation don't think that you might not have done exactly the same the same way in France when the Vichy government came there were plenty of people quite happy to collaborate would they have called themselves nazi sympathizers no they were just trying to get along with life but you know do we hold the same judgment
0: i don't know it's really interesting, isn't it? Let, let's talk about the last one on the shortlist, uh, The uh, the Five, The Untold Lives of the Women Killed by Jack the Ripper by Hallie Rubenhold. Um, th- th- this is a, a really interesting book in that these are women who have not really ever been chronicled before. Zand, what did you make of this?
2: Well, I was very suspicious of that claim. I've listened to lots of kind of crime podcasts, Jack the Ripper comes up an awful lot, and I felt that I had probably somewhere along the way heard their stories, and I went... To um, the LRB bookshop, in fact, and got down their little selection of Jack the Ripper books and went through them all uh, to just make sure that I was right that all these women had their lives. Incredibly of, anyway, they're not diligent. They they're not diligent. None of these, they, they are, the, the books were unbelievably gratuitous about how another whore murdered. This This kind of language in contemporary. Ripperology, as it's called, and I was quite um. So in fact, I I was totally wrong. This book's existence, it, she says in the introduction. You know, it's 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 staggering. It's taken so long for anyone. It's a shame I had to write this book. Uh, you you, I really have a sense that she is completely right about that. That these five women, a sort of canonical five, there are other there are other possible victims. Um, are their stories have not been told properly, and she does a phenomenal job of 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 bringing them to life and drawing the curtains without the kind of prurient kind of pornographic fascination that, that, I think is increasingly big in in sort of true crime. Did, um, did,
0: did it strike you, Miriam, that that this was not just a a work of historical detection, but but that this really was tackling the the bigger picture of the misogyny inherent in this particular case?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think first off, that that you know, as a as a Franco Irish, not British person, I have to say there is a very peculiar British obsession with Jack the Ripper. That for those of us who stand outside of British identity, kind of look at and say, okay, we get it, that's your thing, but <laughs> it's not necessarily obvious to everyone outside of it why it's we such a.
2: Exported him very. Successfully. I don't
1: know, <laughs> no, really. I, I, every we're, The it's rest like of us are just kind yeah. of looking at this, like, I, are we over this yet? I mean, well, eventually <laughs> there will be no more books, or is this is just going to be for life. Okay, so I have to say, I think it's a, been a vital corrective to, as you were saying, Zan, this kind of um, array of books written around this which are deeply misogynistic and, mm. you know, obsessed with what we would call, you know, a, a sort of pornography of violence, um, which, you know, unsurprisingly, there is a whole genre of uh, pornography of violence against women, which does uh, surprisingly well, um, you know. And, we, and all these
2: women have been labelled prostitutes as well right. as the other thing. It's which not just not. The, yeah. the obsession with the violence, that the, the very, the, the sort of, lack of interest in in who they were but also their total mischaracterization it is everyone knows that jack the ripper killed and 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 there's never even any delicacy around the language it's just mm-hmm. prostitutes and whores and these kind of extremely misogynistic terms uh, really the the, the m- most of the women did not self identify as sex workers and there is no evidence that three of them in any way were involved in the sex trade.
1: And even the ones that are, you kind of understand. I mean, anyone who has done the minimum of research around sex workers would really struggle to tie in any narrative of harm coming to those women through the lens of their sex work. It's so deeply yeah. degrading to yeah. what those women have got, gone through to arrive at that death to 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 read it through the lens of their sex work, which you know, obviously historically is tied into the idea that you know women who engaged in sex work so, 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 you know deserved the violence that came their way, and the fact that in two thousand and nineteen we are finally maybe somewhat challenging that narrative as as this book I think does, is you know maybe a little glimmer of light, but it it does it. I am mean, the only the only thing I would say is that we're still. It's still a book about violence against women. I mean, we we get we, you're hearing about these women's lives, but all the way through, all I'm thinking is, you know, and then she's gonna die—a really brutal death—and it doesn't go into the brutal death in the way that you know other books, as you say, obsessively go into it. But I still, I think there's just something about maybe the the cult around, um, you know, murders that I I think, especially when it's murders of of women. That I sort of think, you know, maybe maybe there are other stories about women
0: that need telling. Mm. So on this shortlist, there is only one male writer. Mm. I, I wonder if um, that is 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 that a thing? Is that something that you even? Think? Thought about or? the
2: atmosphere in the room is very anti-men, I have to say.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> and
2: Miriam was largely responsible.
3: Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna speak out.
2: I, I, I think actually we were very uh, is it fair to say there was that was not in any way a part of the conversation, in a way that I think it could have been had the had the shortlist looked different at the end, had it been all men, I think we would have felt very uncomfortable. Uh, but all of these books, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm remembering this right, aren't I? Yeah, they? They, we did not they, we talk about them being the women the at all. Yeah,
1: only um, towards the end when they were lined up did we go, oh,
0: oh there's yeah. five out five of a In
2: a way, few, because it's, it's, a, it's a collection of stories that I think are important. Um, I, I don't think there was any attempt to exclude men or to kind of re- correct history in some way. But these books uh, emerged as the ones that, by consensus... uh, And there wasn't a big fight in the room. You you know, these were, by consensus, the ones that we all loved.
0: Uh, There could, though, be a fight in the room because you have now got to whittle the six down to one and you don't have that much time to do it. Um, how, How are you imagining, given that you've already had all the conversations about how these six books got to the shortlist, are you imagining there to be... A, a real tussle, or or does it feel to you that it'll be sort of probably between three or something?
1: No, there's going to be a real tussle. <laughs> 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 I, I, I predict the tussle um i think i think we we have got a sense of of you know the the bit the main main competitors here but also but, a
0: sense of who's championing which book yeah, yeah we
1: absolutely have got a sense of who's championing whose book but but that's that's really down to the fact that i think we are coming from different perspectives on these issues look i, I you know you you mentioned the fact that it was you know almost all female it's almost all female and you know at least one One, women of colour amongst the writers. The themes are not all, you know, what I would call Anglo or Eurocentric. Um, And I think those are the things that I also think are really important questions for where we are in Britain today. When we talk about the book that wins this prize, we're saying this is a book that's really important for everyone here to read and to take on board. And for me, that carries a responsibility vis-a-vis, you know, what it is that we're saying with this book, you know, are we looking for a book that's, you know, um, send, sending out a message that about who we are, about, about what's important in the UK today and as well as obviously being beautifully written. But I think all of these books are beautifully written. So now it's like, you know, let's let's up the ante about what, what it is that we're looking for.
0: Do, do you think, Zand, it's going to be a, a, a big, a big tussle?
2: I do, in a very nice way. Because, a rigorous
0: conversation. Yeah, I,
2: I, I think, I mean, my mind was changed on many books by, or I don't think there was anyone in the room that didn't persuade me I was wrong about something, um, which is great. Probably the, the tensions exist not around someone going, this is brilliant, and someone else going, this is terrible, but uh, around uh, maybe some of the judges being concerned with importance with theme with the 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 value of the conclusion of the book or the value of the information in the book being reaching as wide an audience as possible and other judges maybe more um would would prioritize the execution of the, the craft the skill the layers of research um the, the the exact quality of the prose and so that's something that that's probably actually the form the debate will take about how we prioritize different aspects of the book um, I think for any anyone who's listening to this, y- you could buy any of these books and learn something really 100%. significant. And and I think some of them, everyone will get. You know, some of them will change your life more than others. But any of them are worth the effort of reading them, for sure.
0: Well, that's a fantastic recommendation. Uh, Zan van Tulliken and Miriam Francois, thank you both very much. I'm very excited. Thank you, Raja. I'm really mm. looking forward to, to seeing who you choose. Now, you can watch the Facebook live stream of the awards ceremony from the Science Museum over on our Facebook page at Bailey Gifford Prize on the evening of the 19th of November by which time the two people sitting in the same room as me now will know who has won. The Blavatnik Family Foundation, who are generously supporting this podcast, also hosts that dinner. Without them, it wouldn't be possible to bring you this series. So thank you again. I'm joined now on the line by Olive Fellows. Uh, Olive is a booktuber, writer and founder of Nonfiction November. Olive, let's start by getting you to tell us uh, why you set up Nonfiction November.
3: Sure. Well, when I first started on BookTube, it was and still to a large extent still is dominated by fiction readers. I don't know if you saw the New York Times article a little over a year ago, but the creators with the biggest presences are definitely young adult readers. Mm-hmm. But when I started watching BookTube back in late 2014, early 2015, there weren't really any nonfiction readers. So that's how I decided to join in the first place to see if there was a place for a nonfiction lover on Booktube. And that's because,
0: that's because you are a nonfiction lover. I am, yes. And so, t- so tell us how, how that's been working then. There clearly is a market, is there, for people who are interested in, in reading nonfiction and talking about it?
3: Absolutely. There are a lot of people out there who love nonfiction books and want to hear more about nonfiction books would love to get some good recommendations. And so I decided at the end of 2015, that I would just have this one month out of the year to seize upon the alliteration and encourage the community to pick up some more nonfiction.
0: And and is the Bailey Gifford Prize a prize that you have been following and that you're interested in?
3: Over the past year and a half, absolutely. I first heard about it last year, and I honestly wasn't even totally aware that there were a lot of nonfiction prizes out there. It's opened up an entire new world to me, lots of new books to research. I've been interested in nonfiction pretty much my entire my entire life. I have a love of learning. I was raised by a teacher, so I think I was kind of set up for that. And what kinds of
0: nonfiction? I mean, do you tend to read biographies, history, what sorts of things?
3: I try to read a little bit of everything. Honestly, I would say my favorite subgenre of nonfiction is definitely memoir, but I also love science and nature writing. I love history. And when
0: you focus on this particular prize, are you going to be going through the shortlist uh, one by one, or, or
3: how will you how will you treat the now that you've discovered the existence of the Bailey Gifford Prize? I definitely want to take on a few of them during Nonfiction November. It's a great opportunity for me to do so. My, the one that I'm most interested in right now is definitely On Chapel Sands. As I said, memoir is probably my favourite subgenre of nonfiction. And the mystery component of that one has me very intrigued. Olive Fellows,
0: thank you very much indeed. We'll be back next time when we will be hearing from the 2019 Bailey Gifford Prize winner. Till then, bye bye. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation.